19. X and allowing them to break themselves on his head, and otherwise amusing the crowd for half an hour or so. The poor necromancer cannot get cash enough to buy himself a dinner. Those who feel disposed to give are not very liberal, and their donations are thrown into the ring very much as one would toss a bone to a bulldog. Sometimes a man will stand with a white painted board, slightly covered with thick ink, and while talking with his auditors he will throw off, by means of his thumb and fingers, excellent pictures of birds and fishes, with every feather, fin, and scale done with accuracy. Such genius ought to be rewarded, but it rarely receives pecuniary recognition enough to enable its possessor to dress decently. Other sleight of hand performances abound, the Chinese are very skillful at little games of thimble rig and the like, and when a stranger chooses to make a bet on their operations they are sure to take in his money. In sword swallowing and knife throwing, the natives of the Flowery Kingdom are without rivals, and the uninitiated spectator can never understand how a man can make a breakfast of Asiatic cutlery without incurring the risk of dyspepsia. China is the paradise of beggars I accept Italy from the mendicant list so far as numbers are concerned, though they do not appear to flourish and live in comfort. There are many dwarfs, and it is currently reported at Pekin that they are produced and cultivated for the special purpose of asking alms. One can be very liberal in China at small expense, as the smallest coin is worth only one-fifteenth of a cent, and a shilling's worth of cash can be made to go a great way if the giver is judicious. Many of the beggars are blind, and they sometimes walk in single file under the direction of a chief. They are nearly all musicians, and make the most hideous noises, which they call melody. Anybody with a sensitive ear will pay them to move on where they will annoy somebody beside himself. Many of the beggars are almost naked, and they attract attention by striking their hands against their hips and shouting at the top of their voices. One day the wife of the French minister at Pekin gave some garments to those who were the most shabbily dressed, the next morning they returned as near naked as ever, and some of them entirely so. Outside of the Tartar city there is a beggar's lodging house, which bears the name of, the House of the Hen's Feathers. It is a hall, with a floor of solid earth and a roof of thin laths cocked and plastered with mud. The floor is covered with a thick bed of feathers, which have been gathered in the markets and restaurants of Pekin without much regard to their cleanliness. There is an immense quilt of thick felt the exact size of the hall, and raised and lowered by means of mechanism. When the curfew tolls the knell of parting day, the beggars flock to this house, and are admitted on payment of a small fee. They take whatever places they like, and at an appointed time the quilt is lowered. Each lodger is at liberty to lie coiled up in the feathers, or if he has a prejudice in favor of fresh air, he can stick his head through one of the numerous holes that the coverlid contains. A view of this quilt when the heads are protruding is suggestive of an apartment where dozens of dilapidated Chinese have been decapitated. All night long the lodgers keep up a frightful noise. The proprietor, like the individual in the same business in New York, will tell you, I sells the place to sleep, but bigger, I know sells the sleep with it. The couch is a lively one. As the feathers are a convenient warrior for a miscellaneous lot of living things not often mentioned in polite society. In the southern cities of China one sees fewer women in the street than in the north. Those that appear in public are always of the poorer classes, and it is rare indeed that one can get a view of the famous small-footed women. The odious custom of compressing the feet is much less common at Peking than in the southern provinces. The Manjur emperors of China opposed it ever since their dynasty ascended the throne and on several occasions they issued severe edicts against it. 
The Tartar and Chinese ladies that compose the court of the empresses have their feet of the natural size, and the same is the case with the wives of many of the officials. But such is the power of fashion that many of these ladies have adopted the theatrical slipper, which is very difficult to walk with. No one can tell where the custom of compressing the feet originated, but it is said that one of the empresses was born with deformed feet, and set the fashion, which soon spread through the empire. The jealousy of the men and the idleness and vanity of the women have served to continue the custom. Every Chinese who can afford it will have at least one small-footed wife, and she is maintained in the most perfect indolence. For a woman to have a small foot is to show that she is of high birth and rich family, and she would consider herself dishonored if her parents failed to compress her feet. When remonstrated with about the practice, the Chinese retort by calling attention to the compression of the waist as practiced in Europe and America. It is all a matter of taste, said a Chinese merchant one day when addressed on the subject. We like women with small feet and you like them with small waists. What is the difference? And what is the difference? The compression is begun when a girl is six years old, and is accomplished with strong bandages. The great toe is pressed beneath the others, and these are bent under, so that the foot takes the shape of a closed fist. The bandages are drawn tighter every month, and in a couple of years the foot has assumed the desired shape and ceased to grow. Very often this compression creates diseases that are difficult to heal. It is always impossible for the small-footed woman to walk easily, and sometimes she cannot move without support. To have the fingernails very long is also a mark of aristocracy. Sometimes the ladies enclose their nails in silver cases which are very convenient for cleansing the ears of their owner or tearing out the eyes of somebody else. Walking along the great street of Peking, one is sure to see a fair number of gamblers and gambling houses. Gambling is a passion with the Chinese, and they indulge it to a greater extent than any other people in the world. It is a scourge in China, and the cause of a great deal of the poverty and degradation that one sees there. There are various games, like throwing dice, and drawing sticks from a pile and there is hardly a poor wretch of a laborer who will not risk the chance of paying double for his dinner on the remote possibility of getting it for nothing. The rich are addicted to the vice quite as much as the poor, and sometimes they will lose their money, then their houses, their lands, their wives, their children, and so on up to themselves, when they have nothing else that their adversaries will accept. The winter is severe at Peking, and it sometimes happens that men who have lost everything, down to their last garments, are thrust naked into the open air, where they perish of cold, sometimes a man will bet his fingers on a game, and if he loses he must submit to have them chopped off and turned over to the winner, there is a tradition that one of the Chinese emperors used to get up lotteries, in which the ladies of the court were the prizes, he obtained quite a revenue from the business, which was popular with both the players and the prizes, as the latter were enabled to obtain husbands without the trouble of negotiation. The lottery has a place in the Chinese courts of justice. There is one mode of capital punishment in which a dozen or twenty knives are placed in a covered basket, and each knife is marked for a particular part of the body. The executioner puts his hand under the cover and draws at random. If the knife is for the toes, they are cut off one after another, if for the feet, they are severed, and so on until a knife for the heart or neck is reached. Usually the friends of the victim bribe the executioner to draw early in the game a knife whose wound will be fatal, and he generally does as he agrees. The bystanders amuse themselves by betting as to how long the culprit will stand it. Facetious dogs, those Chinese, 
To enumerate all the ways of inflicting punishment in China would be to fill a volume. Punishment is one of the fine arts, and a man who can skin another elegantly is entitled to rank as an artist. The bastinado and floggings are common, and then they have huge shears, like those used in tin shops, for snipping off feet and arms, very much as a gardener would cut off the stem of a rose. Some years ago the environs of Tientsin were infested by bands of robbers who were suspected of living in villages a few miles away. The governor was ordered by the imperial authority to suppress these robberies, and in order to get the right persons he sent out his soldiers and arrested everybody, old and young, in the suspected villages. Of course there were innocent persons among the captives, but that made no difference, some of them were blind, and others crippled. But the police had orders to bring in everybody. The prisoners were summarily tried, some of them had their heads cut off, others were imprisoned, and others were whipped. Nobody escaped without some punishment, the result was that the robber bands were broken up and the robbery ceased. It is not easy to go about Peking. It is a city of magnificent distances, and the sights which one wants to see are far apart. The streets are bad, being dusty in dry weather and muddy when it rains and the carriageway is cut up with deep ruts that make riding very uncomfortable. The cabs of Pekin are little carts, just large enough for two persons of medium size. They are without springs, and not very neatly arranged inside. If one does not like them he can walk or take a palanquin. There are plenty of palanquins in the city, and they do not cost an exorbitant sum. They are not very commodious, but infinitely preferable to the carts. The comforts of travel are very few in China. A Chinese never travels for pleasure, and he does not understand the spirit that leads tourists from one end of the world to the other in search of adventure. When he has nothing to do he sits down, smokes his pipe, and thinks about his ancestors. He never rides, walks, dances, or takes the least exercise for pleasure alone. It is business and nothing else that controls his movements. When an English ship touched at Hong Kong some years ago, the captain gave a ball to the foreign residents, and invited several Chinese merchants to attend the festivities. One heavy old merchant who had never before seen anything of the kind, looked on patiently, and when the dance was concluded he beckoned the captain to his side and asked if he could not get his servants to do that work and save him the trouble. One of the great curiosities of Peking is the Temple of Confucius, where once a year the emperor worships the great sage without the intervention of paintings or images. In the central shrine there is a small piece of wood, a few inches long, standing upright and bearing the name of Confucius in Chinese characters. The temple contains several stone tablets, on which are engraved the records of honor conferred on literary men, and it is the height of a Chinese scholar's ambition to win a place here. There are several fine trees in the spacious courtyard, and they are said to have been planted by the Mongol dynasty more than 500 years ago. The building is a magnificent one and contains many curious relics of the various dynasties, some of them a thousand years old. The ceiling is especially gorgeous, and the tops of the interior walls are ornamented with wooden boards bearing the names of the successive emperors in raised gilt characters. As soon as an emperor ascends the throne he at once adds his name to the list. The Temple of Heaven and the Temple of Earth are also among the curiosities of Peking. The former stands in an enclosed space a mile square, and has a great central pavilion with a blue roof, and a gilt top that shines in the afternoon sun like the dome of Street Isaac's Church at St. Petersburg. The enclosed space includes a park, beautifully laid out with avenues of trees and with regular, well-paved walks, 
In the park are some small buildings where the priests live, that is to say, they are small compared with the main structure, though they are really fine edifices. The great pavilion is on a high causeway, and has flights of steps leading up to it from different directions. The pavilion is three stories high, the eaves of each story projecting very far and covered with blue enameled tiles. An enormous gilt ball crowns the whole, and around the building there is a bewildering array of arches and columns, with promenades and steps of white marble, evincing great skill and care in their construction. Unfortunately, the government is not taking good care of the temple, and the grass is growing in many places in the crevices of the pavements. The Temple of Earth is where the Emperor goes annually to witness the ceremony of opening the planting season, and to inaugurate it by plowing the first furrow. The ceremony is an imposing one, and never fails to draw a large assemblage. One of the most interesting objects in the vicinity of Peking previous to 1860 was Yuan Min Yuan, or the Summer Palace of the Emperor, Qinlong. It was about eight miles northwest of the city, and bore the relation to Peking that Versailles does to Paris. I say was, because it was ravaged by the English and French forces in their advance upon the Chinese capital and all the largest and best of the buildings were burned. The country was hilly, and advantage was taken of this fact, so that the park presented every variety of hill, dale, woodland, lawn, garden, and meadow, interspersed with canals, pools, rivulets, and lakes, with their banks in imitation of nature. The park contained about 12 square miles, and there were nearly 40 houses for the residence of the emperor's ministers each of them surrounded with buildings for large retinues of servants. The Summer Palace, or Central Hall of Reception, was an elaborate structure, and when it was occupied by the French army thousands of yards of the finest silk and crepe were found there. These articles were so abundant that the soldiers used them for bedclothes and to wrap around other plunder. The cost of this palace amounted to millions of dollars, and the blow was severely felt by the Chinese government. The park is still worth a visit but less so than before the destruction of the palace. In the country around Pekin there are many private burying grounds belonging to families. The Chinese do not, like ourselves, bury their dead in common cemeteries. But each family has a plot of its own. Sometimes a few families combine and own a place together. They generally select a spot in a grove of trees, and make it as attractive as possible. The Chinese are more careful of their resting places after death than before it. A wealthy man will lie in a miserable hovel, but he looks forward to a commodious tomb beneath pretty shade trees. The tender regard for the dead is an admirable trait in the Chinese character, and springs, no doubt, from that filial piety which is so deeply engraved on the Oriental mind. In Europe and America it is the custom not to mention coffins in polite society, and the contemplation of one is always mournful. But in China a coffin is a thing to be made a show of, like a piano. In many houses there is a room set apart for the coffins of the members of the family, and the owners point them out with pride. They practice economy to lay themselves out better than their rivals, and sometimes a man who has made a good thing by swindling or robbing somebody, will use the profits in buying a coffin, just as an American would treat himself to a gold watch or diamond pin. The most elegant gift that a child can make to his sick father is a coffin that he has paid for out of his own labor. It is not considered a hint to the old gentleman to hand in his checks and get out of the way, but rather as a mark of devotion which all good boys should imitate. The coffins are finely ornamented, according to the circumstances of the owner, 
and I have heard that sometimes a thief will steal a fine one and commit suicide first arranging with his friends to bury him in it before his theft is discovered. If he is not found out he thinks he has made a good thing of it. Whenever the Chinese sell ground for building purposes they always stipulate for the removal of the bones of their ancestors for many generations. The bones are carefully dug up and put in earthen jars. When they are sealed up, labeled, and put away in a comfortable room, as if they were to so many pots of pickles and fruits. Every respectable family in China has a liberal supply of potted ancestors on hand, but would not part with them at any price. Nothing can surpass the calm resignation with which the Chinese part with life. They die without groans, and have no mental terror at the approach of death. Abbe Hugh says that when they came for him to administer the last sacraments to a dying convert, their formula of saying that the danger was imminent, was in the words, the sick man does not smoke his pipe. When a Chinese wishes to revenge himself upon another he furtively places a corpse upon the property of his enemy. This subjects the man on whose premises the body is found to many vexatious visits from the officials, and also to claims on the part of the relations of the dead man. The height of a joke of this kind is to commit suicide on another man's property in such a way as to appear to have been murdered there. This will subject the unfortunate object of revenge to all sorts of legal vexations, and not infrequently to execution. Suicide for revenge would be absurd in America, but is far from unknown at the antipodes. Chapter XXXI It was my original intention to make a journey from Kyotka to Pekin and back again, but the lateness of the season prevented me. I did not wish to be caught in the desert of Gobi in winter. I talked with several persons who had traversed Mongolia, and among them a gentleman who had just arrived from the Chinese capital. I made many notes from his recital which I found exceedingly interesting. For a time the Chinese refused passports to foreigners wishing to cross Mongolia, but on finding their action was likely to cause trouble, they gave the desired permission, though accompanying it with an intimation that the privilege might be suspended at any time. The bonds that unite Mongolia to the great empire are not very strong, the natives being somewhat indifferent to their rulers and ready at any decent provocation to throw off their yoke. Though engaged in the peaceful pursuits of sheep tending, and transporting freight between Russia and China, they possess a warlike spirit and are capable of being roused into violent action. They are proud of tracing their ancestry to the soldiers that marched with Genghis Khan, and carried his victorious banners into Central Europe. Around their fires at night no stories are more eagerly heard than those of war, and he who can relate the most wonderful traditions of daring deeds may be certain of admiration and applause. The first, outside barbarian, other than Russians, who attempted this overland journey, was a young French count, who traveled in search of adventure, proceeding eastward from St. Petersburg. He reached Kyotka in 1859, after some hesitation. The Governor-General of Eastern Siberia appointed him secretary to a Russian courier en route for Peking. He made the journey without serious hindrance, but on reaching the Chinese capital his nationality was discovered, and he was forced to return to Siberia. From Peking the traveler destined for Siberia passes through the northern gate amid clouds of dust or pools of mud, according as the day of his exit is fair or stormy. He meets long strings of carts drawn by mules, oxen, or ponies carrying country produce of different kinds to be digested in the great maw of the imperial city. Animals with pack saddles, swaying under heavy burdens, swell the caravans, and numerous equestrians, either bestriding their steeds, or sitting sidewise in apparent carelessness, 
are constantly encountered. Now and then an unruly mule causes a commotion in the crowd by a vigorous use of his heels, and a watchful observer may see an unfortunate native sprawling on the ground in consequence of approaching too near one of the hybrid beasts. Chinese mules will kick as readily as their American cousins, and I can say from experience, that their hoofs are neither soft nor delicate, they can bray, too, in tones terribly discordant and utterly destructive of sleep. The natives have a habit of suppressing their music when it becomes positively unbearable, and the means they employ may be word of notice. A Chinaman says a mule cannot bray without elevating his tail to a certain height, so to silence the beast he ties a stone to that ornamental appendage, and depends upon the weight to shut off the sound. Out of compassion to the mule, he attaches the stone so that it rests upon the ground and makes no strain as long as the animal behaves himself. A Chinese pack mule will carry about 400 pounds of dead weight. If properly adjusted, the loads are not lashed on the animal's backs, but simply balanced, consequently, they must be very nicely divided and arranged on each side of the saddles. On the road from Pekin the track is so wretched, and the cart so roughly made, that journeying with wheeled vehicles is next to an impossibility. Travelers go on horseback if their circumstances allow and by way of comfort especially if there be ladies in the party, they generally provide themselves with mule lippers, the mule lipper is a goodly sized palanquin, not quite long enough for lying at full length, but high enough to allow the passenger to sit erect, there is a box or false flooring in the bottom, to accommodate baggage in small parcels that can be easily stowed, a good lipper has the side stuff to save the occupant from bruises, and with plenty of straw and a couple of pillows, he generally finds himself quite comfortable. The body is fastened to two strong and flexible poles that extend fore and aft far enough to serve as shafts for a couple of mules. At the ends of the shafts their points are connected by stout bands of leather that pass over the saddles of the respective mules. Each band is kept in place by an iron pin fixed in the top of the saddle, and passing through a hole in the leather. As the shafts are long enough to afford the animals plenty of walking room, there is a good deal of spring to the concern, and the motion is by no means disagreeable. Sometimes the bands slip from the shafts, and in such case the machine comes to the ground with a disagreeable thump. If the traveler happens to be asleep at the time he can easily imagine he is being shot from a catapult. Just outside of Pekin there is a sandy plain, and beyond it a fine stretch of country under careful cultivation, the principal cereal being millet, that often stands 10 or 12 feet high. Some cotton is grown, but the region is too far north to render its culture profitable. About 20 miles from Pekin is the village of Shaho, near to old stone bridges that span a river now nearly dried away. The village is a sort of halfway halting place between Pekin and the Nankawa Pass, a rocky defile 12 or 15 miles long. The huge boulders and angular fragments of stone have been somewhat worn down and smoothed by constant use though they are still capable of using up a good many mule hoops annually, with an eye to business. A few traveling farriers hang about this pass, and find occasional employment in setting shoes. Chinese shoeing, considered as a fine art, is very much in its infancy. Animals are only shod when the nature of the service requires it. The farriers do not attempt to make shoes to order, but they keep a stock of iron plates on hand, and select the nearest size they can find. They hammer the plate a little to fit it to the hoof and then fasten it on. An American blacksmith would be astonished at the rapidity with which his Chinese brother performs his work. The Pass of Mankawa contains the remains of several old forts, 
which were maintained in former times to protect China from Mongol incursions. The natural position is a strong one, and a small force could easily keep at bay a whole army. Just outside the northern entrance of the pass there is a branch of one of the Great Walls of China. It was built some time before the Great Wall. Foreigners visiting Pekin and desiring to see the Great Wall are usually taken to Nankow, and gravely told they have attained the object they seek. Perhaps it is just as well for them to believe so, since they avoid a journey of 50 miles farther over a rough road to reach the real Great Wall. Besides, the Chinese who have contracted to take them on the excursion are able to make a nice thing of it, since they charge as much for one place as for the other. The country for a considerable distance is dotted with old forts and ruins, and the remains of extensive earthworks. Many battles were fought here between the Chinese and the Mongols when Genghis Khan made his conquest. For a long time the assailants were kept at bay, but one fortress after another fell into their hands, and finally the capture of the Nankawa Pass by Chapi, one of Genghis Khan's generals, laid Pekin at their mercy. There is a tradition that the loss of the first line of northern forts was due to a woman. Intelligence was transmitted in those days by means of beacon fires, and the signals were so arranged as to be rapidly flashed through the empire. Once a lady induced the emperor to give the signal and summon his armies to the capital. The mandarins assembled with their forces, but on finding they had been simply employed at the caprice of the woman, they returned angrily to their homes. By and by the enemy came. The beacon fires were again lighted, but this time the mandarins did not heed the call for assistance. The Great Wall the real one crosses the road at Chan Kiaikau, a large and scattered town lying in a broad valley, pretty well enclosed by mountains. The Russians call the town Kalgan Gate, but the natives never use any other than the Chinese name. In maps made from Russian authorities, Kalgan appears, while in those taken from the Chinese, the other appellation is used. Kalgan I stick to the Russian term, as more easily pronounced, though less correct is the center of the transit trade from Pekin to Kyotka, and great quantities of tea and other goods pass through it annually. Several Russians are established there, and the town contains a population of Chinese from various provinces of the empire, mingled with Mongols and Tibetans in fair proportion. The religion is varied, and embraces adherence to all the branches of Chinese theology together with Mongol Lamas and a considerable sprinkling of Mahometans. There are temples, lamasaries, and mosques, according to the needs of the faithful, and the Russian inhabitants have a chapel of their own, and are thus able to worship according to their own faith. The mingling of different tribes and kinds of people in a region where manners and morals are not severely strict, has produced a result calculated to puzzle the present or future ethnologist. Many of the merchants have grown wealthy and take life as comfortably as possible, they furnish their houses in the height of Chinese style, and some of them have even sent to Russia for the wherewith to astonish their neighbors. The Great Wall runs along the ridge of hills in a direction nearly east and west, where it crosses the town it is kept in good repair, but elsewhere it is very much in ruins, and could offer little resistance to an enemy. Many of the towers remain, and some of them are but little broken. They seem to have been better constructed than the main portions of the wall, and, though useless against modern weapons, were, no doubt, of importance in the days of their erection. The Chinese must have held the Mongol hordes in great dread, to judge by the labor expended to guard against incursions, as Kalgan is the frontier town between China and Mongolia. Many Mongols go there for all purposes, from trading down to loafing. They bring their camels to engage in transporting goods across the desert. 
and indulge in a great deal of traffic on their own account. They drive cattle, sheep, and horses from their pastures farther north, and sell them for local use, or for the market at Peking. Mutton is the staple article of food, and nearly always cheap and abundant. The hillsides are covered with flocks, which often graze where nothing else can live. In the autumn, immense numbers of sheep are driven to Peking, and sometimes the road is fairly blocked with them. Every morning there is a horse fair on an open space just beyond the Great Wall, and on its northern side, the modes of buying and selling horses are very curious, and many of the tricks would be no discredit to American jockeys. The horses are tied or held wherever their owners can keep them, and in the center of the fairgrounds there is a space where the beasts are shown off. They trot or gallop up and down the course, their riders yelling as if possessed of devils, and holding their whips high in air. These riders are generally Mongols, their garments flutter like the decorations of a scarecrow in a morning breeze, and their pigtails, if not carefully triced up, stand out at right angles like ship's pennants in a northeast gale. Notwithstanding all the confusion, it rarely happens that anybody is run over, though there are many narrow escapes. The fair is attended by two classes of people those who want to trade in horses, and those who don't, between them they manage to assemble a large crowd. There are always plenty of curbstone brokers, or intermediaries, who hang around the fair to negotiate purchases and sales. They have a way of conducting trades by drawing their long sleeves over their hands, and making or receiving bids by means of the concealed fingers. This mode of telegraphing is quite convenient when secrecy is desired, and prevails in many parts of Asia. Tavernier and other travelers say the diamond merchants conduct their transactions in this manner even when no one is present to observe them, unless arrangements have been made beforehand. It will be necessary to spend three or four days at Kalgan in preparing for the journey over the desert. Camels must be hired, carts purchased, baggage packed in convenient parcels, and numerous odds and ends provided against contingencies. Of course, there is generally something forgotten, even after careful attention to present and prospective wants. But we are off at last.